Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I look at every single Prime Minister from Sir Johnny MacDonald all the way up to Justin Trudeau. But before I get to that, I want to say thank you to Bismarck86 for his wonderful 5-star review, as well as to Big Philly Style, who also left a 5-star review on the podcast. I truly do appreciate it. I'd also like to say thank you to Jennifer Allen, who donated to the podcast, and that I truly do appreciate as well. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast like Jennifer did by going to my website and clicking donate. Just go to CanadaEHX.com and click donate. Today we're looking at Brian Mulroney. He was our Prime Minister through the much of the 1980s and into the 1990s, and he had quite the career from very popular to very unpopular. He's also the first Prime Minister that I actually remember as a kid. So let's get right to it. Born Martin Brian Mulroney in Bécamo, Quebec, to Irish immigrants Mary and Benedict on March 20th, 1939, Mulroney was born into a town that got its start thanks to the newspapers. The town had that start thanks to Colonel Robert McCormick, who owned the Chicago Tribune and used the town to supply his papers with newsprint. Benedict Mulroney was one of the pioneers to the town when it was first founded in the 1930s, and Mulroney's father wanted his children to escape the paper mill that dominated the job market of the area. To that end, Benedict worked extra hard, running a side repair business, and taking the overtime he could get in order to have extra money for his children's education. Mulroney would state later in life, quote, The company provided schools and a hospital and a steady living which was irresistible to my father. He signed on as an electrician's helper in 1937 and stayed there until he died 30 years later. End quote. The hard work of his father was something that Mulroney noticed and greatly admired. He would say later, quote, My father worked six days a week in a hot paper mill, including 16 hours on Sunday. He would come home after a full day's work, have a quick meal, and then head out into the cold night to fix someone's oil burner or wire someone's new home. I learned from him a sense of responsibility, commitment to family, and the importance of hard work. End quote. As a young man of 10, Mulroney's first job would be at the local food store, where he washed fruits and vegetables and kept the shelves stocked, working after school and on weekends. All the money he made went to his mother, who was considered to be the banker of the family. Living on the north shore of the St. Lawrence River, Mulroney would often look at the outside world from the small town with awe, and he would say, quote, The summers were fleeting and the winters long and bitterly cold. I remember as a boy I would lay in bed at night and listen to American radio stations. With my imagination, I painted pictures in the sky, all the excitement that was available outside my little town, and the future that might exist out there. I was very much a dreamer. End quote. There was no English language school in the area, so Mulrooney would attend the private St. Thomas High School in New Brunswick. The yearly tuition was $405 or $4,000 today, and for the family it was a significant amount of money. He would later attend the St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia as a 16-year-old freshman, where he studied political science and became involved in the conservative club on campus. In the combined Atlantic University's parliament, he also served as Prime Minister. Mulroney would also win several speaking contests at St. Francis, never losing a single inter-university debate. From an early age, Mulroney was captivated by the speaking skills of John Diefenbaker and how approachable he was. 
This would set him on his own path to eventually becoming Prime Minister himself. And like Diefenbaker, and oddly unusual for Canadian Prime Ministers, Mulroney also wanted to lead the country from a young age. As a child, Mulroney was an excellent student and a gifted athlete. He also had an excellent singing voice, and Robert McCormick would often have Mulroney perform at the company's social events. Mulroney would get his first taste of politics when he worked for the successful leadership campaign of John Diefenbaker in 1956. With the successful win by Diefenbaker for the leadership of the party, he began to take Mulroney under his wing, and the two would become friends and Diefenbaker would often call Mulroney. When Mulroney was attending a Laval, he told people he was the student advisor to Diefenbaker, the current Prime Minister at the time in 1961. Of course, no one believed him, and dared him to invite Diefenbaker to speak at the university. Now this is where things get a bit murky, as there are two versions of the story. In one story, his classmates see Diefenbaker and Mulroney sitting in a cafeteria having lunch together, and in another story, Mulroney actually did have Diefenbaker attend law class one day. Mulroney quickly began to make a name for himself at this point thanks to his charm, gregarious personality, and due to the fact that he was fluent in both French and English. After graduating in 1959, Mulroney would pursue his law degree at Dalhousie Law School, and while in Nova Scotia, he developed a friendship with Robert Stanfield, who was looking to become the Premier of Nova Scotia, and Dalton Camp, the chief advisor of the Premier. The campaign was a success, and Mulroney made an impact with the older members of the campaign team. Finley MacDonald, who also worked on the campaign, would say, quote, One word described my first impression of Brian Mulroney. Irreprensible. He was enthusiastic, charming, and dogged. A doggedness he could always back up with performance. If you told him, for example, to tie a pink ribbon to a dog's tail, it was tied and it was in the right spot. End quote. Mulroney found himself drawn to the Conservative Party, and later in life, he would say that he didn't want to be a liberal because they were no fun and they took themselves too seriously. In 1960, Mulroney would assist Stanfield with his re election, but it came at the cost of his studies. In the winter term, Mulroney also fell seriously ill, and he would leave Dalhousie University after the first year. In 1961, Mulroney returned to Quebec and would receive a law degree from Laval University. And while back in Quebec, Mulroney would befriend the future premier of the province, Daniel Johnson. And he often went to the provincial legislature where he met a new group of friends including Lucien Bouchard and Michael Meehan, the grandson of Arthur Meehan, former prime minister. Go check out that episode. During this time, he became more involved with the progressive conservative youth wing, and he came to know a man by the name of Joe Clark, another man who would have a long impact on the career of Mulroney, and who I covered just a few episodes ago. Working closely with political leaders, Mulroney would be rewarded with the job as an executive assistant to Alvin Hamilton, the Minister of Agriculture in Ottawa. When the federal election was called that year, Hamilton was appointed as acting prime minister for the campaign, and Mulroney accompanied him on the campaign trail, gaining excellent experience. Following his graduation from Laval University, Mulroney joined the Norton Rose Fulbright Law Firm, which was the largest law firm in the Commonwealth at the time. Interestingly, Mulroney failed the bar twice, but due to his charming personality, he was kept on on the firm until he passed, which he did in 1965. He soon became a labor lawyer, where he would use his skills with reconciliation and negotiation. Sadly, tragedy would strike when Mulroney lost his father when he was only 24, 
leaving Mulroney to take on the responsibilities and financial well-being of the family. Mulroney would finance the educations of his brother and sister and supported his mother for the rest of his life. In 1966, with the Progressive Conservatives pushing against John Diefenbaker after failed elections, Mulroney began to work with Dalton Camp and his supporters against Diefenbaker to have Camp chosen as the new leader. Sitting in the background in that hotel room group was a bright young conservative lawyer from Montreal named Brian Mulroney. He and his friends, the supporters of Dalton Camp, succeeded in turning the Conservative Party upside down. And the question now is, of course, what are they going to do about the wreckage? How about it, Mr. Mulroney? Well, I, I have to disagree with uh, your description of the results of uh, last week's conference. I think uh, your reference to the word uh, wreckage is both uh, inaccurate and unfair. Oh, no, let's be realistic. You had men walk out. They had other men threaten to hit each other, members of the same political party. You had a clear public uh, effort to uh, remove an elected leader of a party. If this isn't something that leaves wreckage, I don't know what is. Well, I don't know that that's accurate either. I can't, and nor can anyone else, be responsible for anyone else's conduct. All I know is that I didn't take a swing at anyone, and, and uh, I don't know that any of the, uh, or at least to my knowledge, um, this sort of thing was isolated, and I don't think that it ought, should be, it ought to be given much more importance than that. There were, it's true, there were um, tempers uh, rose, there were hard feelings on occasion, but by and large, I, on, I disagree profoundly with your definition of what happened, or your reference to what happened as being a wreckage. It was, in my view, um, a healthy illustration of what happens to a political party when you invite free and uh, unfettered expression of opinion. And admittedly, it's not uh, the consequences are never as predictable as when, as when you uh, invite a whole group of people from across the country to a, to a conference and say, all right, uh, boys, you're going to do this, this, and this. No, there was, there was a, an element of, of uh, sort of quasi-revolution, if you will, in the air, but... Uh, by and large, everything was constructive, and I think that uh, the party uh, took positive steps. And well, I, how, how, can you, how can you say that? I, I think there, there was something positive about repudiating Mr. Diefenbaker, but he's still the leader. You now have a party whose leader has been repudiated by a majority at a convention and who obviously can never lead the party to victory in an election, which is supposed to be a leader's job, and he won't leave. He's still the leader. Now, you've got a party, if it isn't wreckage, you're in disarray. And you fellows, you young fellows who had such a hand in it, uh, not all the rebels were young, I agree, but the, that was where the real pep came. It was the young people who had the, the nerve to sit there and not get up when he entered the room and this sort of thing. What have you got that's constructive? Who were you for when you, when you were fighting Diefenbaker? We weren't fighting Diefenbaker, first of all. We I were, couldn't have been that wrong. I was well, at the same convention. It, it's, well, we were, we were certainly at the same convention. I think we saw each other there. But uh, interpretations differ. In 1967, when the Progressive Conservative Leadership Convention was held, Mulroney, along with Joe Clark, supported E. Davy Fulton for leader. And when Fulton dropped out, Mulroney and his group put their support behind Robert Stanfield, who then won. Mulroney was then chosen to be the chief advisor to Stanfield in Quebec. On May 26, 1973, Mulroney married Mila Pivniki, the daughter of a Serbian doctor. Together, the couple would have four children, including Ben Mulroney, who would go on to host Your Morning, while Carolyn Mulroney would run for the PC leadership and is currently the Ontario Minister of Transportation. As a member of the Commission on Violence and Corruption in the Construction Industry in Quebec in 1974 and 1975, 
Mulroney gained attention for his articulate speaking and hard-hitting style. This commission, which was looking at the James Bay Project, Canada's largest hydroelectrical project at the time, which was marred with dirty tactics and violence as part of a union struggle. Mulroney worked with Lucien Bouchard as counsel and found that the Mafia was in the unions, and the commission made Mulroney well-known in Quebec through the extensive media coverage. Through this, Mulroney also became friends with Robert Barossa, the premier of the province, and this would have big benefits for Mulroney later in his life. During the inquiry, both the chairman, Judge Cliche, and Mulroney have received death threats. My wife, uh, as was reported in the press, uh, because the police spoke to them, uh, she received a number of direct threats. What did they say? Well, one of them said, um, your husband has a big mouth, uh, but we've got a bigger shotgun to fill it. Uh, anyone who knows me uh, knows, of course, that I've got a big mouth. That, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't a problem, but uh, what was a little intimidating was the prospect of somebody uh, ramming a shotgun uh, at me, and uh, that wasn't too pleasant. It is clear that an organization of this kind is not what is referred to in Quebec as uh, une organisation de broche à foin. Uh, in other words, something that's held together with uh, chicken wire. Is a very serious business, and it's a multi-million dollar affair uh, that certainly doesn't exist uh, simply because Joe Blow down the corner decides he wants to do something. So it's a serious matter, and it's a very sophisticated organization that has uh, access to levers of power in a dozen different fields. And yet it's quite a jump from what I've, what I've just said uh, to suggest that uh, this is a mafia organization. Um, you will remember that uh, one of the witnesses before the inquiry, Mr. Uh, Francesco Fuoco, um, who was uh, in, in, the, in the pen and uh, was a, had been convicted as an habitual criminal, um, uh, wrote a letter w which our investigators seized in which he said that he had access to criminal uh, associates uh, in order to help out people in the trade union movement. Uh, that's as far as, well, and, and, and he, of course he went on from there to say that he also had access to 2,000 people in New York, Chicago, and Montreal who could kill or maim or do whatever you want. That was as close as we got to a direct involvement with what is known or what is commonly referred to as the Mafia. Uh, we think it's sort of more homegrown than that. In the province, he was now the leading conservative organizer, and despite not being in political office yet, he ran for leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party in 1976. In that leadership run, Mulroney picked up 357 votes and finished second on the first ballot ahead of Joe Clark. On the second ballot, he had 419 votes, but on the third ballot, he had 369 votes and he was eliminated, while Joe Clark would go on to win the leadership of the party. Many felt that Mulroney's campaign was too expensive, and Mulroney lacked experience in Parliament and had vague policy positions. When the leadership race was done, Mulroney was only one of 11 candidates who did not provide full financial disclosures, and his campaign finished deeply in debt. That same year, Mulroney became the vice president of the Iron Ore Company and served as its president from 1977 to 1983, where he emphasized management labor relations. The leadership loss hit Mulroney hard, and he would fall into alcohol abuse and depression for several years after the failed leadership bid. 
But thanks to his wife, he was able to rebound. In 1979, he stopped drinking. In 1982, as a prominent member of the Progressive Conservatives, Mulroney stood with Clark at a press conference and endorsed him publicly as others were beginning to look to remove Clark from leadership. In truth, Mulroney was working behind the scenes to defeat Clark, and Clark's own Quebec organizer was actually working for Mulroney to undermine Clark. In 1983, once again not having served in Parliament, Mulroney ran for the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party. This time, he decided to go for a low-key effort compared to his more showy 1976 campaign. The weakness, that he lacked policy depth, was remedied by Mulroney through a series of major speeches he made around Canada in the early 1980s, which were collected into his book, Where I Stand, which was published in 1983. In that leadership run, he took 874 votes on the first ballot, 1,021 votes on the second ballot, and 1,036 votes on the third ballot. Of the first three ballots, Mulroney slowly decreased the lead of Joe Clark until the fourth ballot, when he pulled ahead with 1,584 votes, becoming the new leader of the party. Final ballot. Votes needed to win, 1,455. Joe Clark, 1,325. Nothing else had to be said. Brian Mulroney had taken the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party defeating a former Prime Minister by 259 votes. Mulroney, the electrician's son from Baycomo, Quebec, the man who's never even run for Parliament, now had succeeded in taking the party's top office. It put a sudden end to the seven-year leadership of Joe Clark, the man who'd fought so long and hard to hold on to the job he cherished, accepted gracefully the convention's cruel verdict. The party has made its choice. The party now has its duty to ensure that that choice is supported in every corner of the party and every corner of the country. It had been a four-ballot, nine-hour marathon in a sweaty hall. When Mulroney's victory was announced later, the first thing he did was pay tribute to the man he'd beaten. I salute him as a friend as a colleague in arms, and as a distinguished and most thoughtful Canadian. Brian Mulroney now has two formidable tasks. First, to get elected to Parliament, and second, to start reuniting this battle-scarred Conservative Party. Michael Vaughn, CBC News, Ottawa. Winning a by-election in central Nova, Nova Scotia, with 60.2% of the vote on August 29, 1983, Mulroney became the leader of the official opposition. Nova Scotia Premier John Buchanan called it the biggest political meeting in the province's history. More than 20 MPs showed up. The most prominent Conservatives in the province had come to view the spectacle. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great honour to declare a proud family man as the candidate for our riding in the next by-election, Brian Mulroney. It was the consecration of the Dauphin. Brian Mulroney's elevation to candidate. Tory after Tory came out to praise him. And the final and all-important accolade, legitimacy. The support of Nova Scotia's favorite political son. Robert Stanfield told this hometown audience that Brian Mulroney is no radical. And they loved it. And I assure you, if by any chance he turns out to be doctrinaire, 
I'll take him out to the woodshed myself because I don't think he's that much bigger than I am. <laughs> when Brian Mulrooney was finally lured out after being serenaded by Catherine McKinnon and a pipe band from the nearby gathering of the clans, he repeated what he'd said before in his campaign for leadership. There are three issues. The first is jobs, the second is jobs, and the third is jobs. Those are the issues of the campaign. Next day in the rain-washed streets of nearby New Glasgow, people were talking about the meeting at the Trenton Rink. Conservatives Earl Bigger and Don O'Brien were exuberant. Down there we're, last we're, night. we're both supporters. We were down at that oh, meeting last night. It was fantastic. We'll put, never uh, see anything like it in the county again. Put Pictosander on, on center, you know, center stage well, of all of Canada. You know, a lot of people know where it is. Where well, it is now, a lot of people know where it was. Yeah. Now, a lot of people have been saying, okay, what is it going to do for Central Nova? Well, I'll tell you what it's done already. It's taken hundreds of people in to our constituency that are staying at motels and spending money on meals and so on. So it started already. Now, I suppose you want to ask me how we feel about Brian Maroney coming into Pictou County, and, uh, and you're going to say that he doesn't have any roots here and so on. So let me tell you this. <clears throat> Brian Maroney has his roots in Canada, first of all. He's a Canadian, and we're only too delighted that he came down to Central Nova and is running for us because everybody in this county is going to be so proud that we were part of the thing to make him the next Prime Minister of Canada. He then began to work to heal the wounds of the party and build a solid electoral machine in a short time as he knew that an election was coming. Around the same time, Mulroney also quit smoking. With the retirement of Pierre Trudeau, and at the time the Liberals were leading in the polls, and Turner decided to capitalize on this and he called an election for September of 1984. The Conservatives were actually caught off guard by this because they thought that Turner would take advantage of the visits by Queen Elizabeth II and Pope John Paul II to tour the country and raise his profile. In the 1984 election, Mulroney ran an excellent campaign against Prime Minister John Turner and the Liberals. And Turner made several gaffes after being away from politics since 1976. I covered many of those in my last episode about Turner, so check it out. One of the biggest issues was the patronage appointments of Trudeau, which numbered 200. Rather than cancel these, Turner implemented an additional 80 of his own. In the leadership debate, Mulroney went on the offensive and he attacked Turner over it. Many observers felt that this showing in the leadership debate was what pushed Mulroney towards his election as Prime Minister. On September 4th, the Progressive Conservatives picked up 211 seats, the largest number in Canadian history to date. One of the biggest wins for the party in that election was the 58 seats they took in Quebec, the home province of Mulroney. This was the most seats that the Conservatives won in Quebec since 1896. Running in a Quebec riding, Mulroney defeated the Liberal incumbent with 71.6% of the vote and almost 20,000 more votes. The Conservatives won just over half the vote and led in every province for the first time since 1958. Speaking at 1 a.m. on the night of his election, Mulroney would state, quote, The people of Canada coast to coast have spoken, and the people are always right, end quote. 
In public anyway, Brian Mulrooney is not letting too much of the sheer joy of all this show through. But behind the scenes, here in Sertil, just the other night, as he saw this huge sweep coming, Mulrooney told his story of that turning point in the campaign, the debate, patronage, and that one line from John Turner, I had no option. As Mulrooney tells this story, with his eyes gleaming, he says, right then, I knew he was a goner. Turner was shaking, he says, and then, bam, I hit him. I knew they were going to have to carry him out of there. And so, like a prize fighter retelling that championship bout, Mulrooney knows how to relish his victory. When we arrive, there will be a spontaneous demonstration. <laughs> Soon, Mulrooney was back on the plane, this time headed for Ottawa. He signed autographs by the dozen, and then the climax of the day. With the Strauss theme from the movie 2001 blaring from an onboard loudspeaker, the Mulrooney plane was coming in for its final landing. Reporters and aides and family alike all overjoyed to touch down for the last time. Now the hard work begins. Two days of meetings at Stornoway. Questions pressing in fast. The cabinet, who's in, who's out. The transition of power. The meeting with Turner. The protocol questions to be settled soon. The Pope's visit and the Queen's visit. And moving house. Last, Mila asked him to grab their five-year-old son, Mark, and head for home. Tonight, it's going to be a quiet family dinner, and tomorrow morning, the first meeting to decide what to do with the Mulrooney landslide. Tony Malewski, CBC News, Ottawa. On September 17, 1984, Mulrooney was sworn in as the 18th Prime Minister of Canada, and Mulrooney was chosen as the Canadian Press Newsmaker of the Year. With the first Conservative majority government in 26 years and only the second in 54 years, Mulrooney got down to work in his first term as the leader of the country. Things did not get off to a great start, though. Mulrooney's support was based on the support of populists in the West, Quebec nationalists, and fiscal Conservatives in Ontario and the Maritimes. With so many supporters all wanting him to support them in different ways, it caused some fracturing in the support Mulrooney had around the country. For the West, he would cancel the National Energy Program and he appointed Westerners to his cabinet, including Joe Clark. He moved the servicing of the CF-18 from Manitoba to Quebec, even though the Manitoba company had a better rating and lower bid, which angered Manitoba but pleased Quebec. He did keep supporters in Manitoba through his recognition and stance on the minority French language rights in the province. Another issue was that with so much time away from leading the country, the Progressive Conservatives had few ministers with any experience beyond Joe Clark. A main focus for Mulrooney was the deficit of the country, which had increased from $1 billion in the 1960s to $32.4 billion by the early 1980s. He was successful in this regard, and he reduced the percent of the GDP the deficit took up from 8.3% to 5.6%. Unfortunately, by the end of 1985, only one year into his first term, 60% of Canadians thought Mulrooney was not keeping his promises. In 1986, 60% of respondents said they wanted a new Prime Minister. By the spring of 1987, Mulrooney would launch two initiatives that would serve as the main aspects of his first term. They were the negotiation of the Meech Lake Accord and the conclusion of the Free Trade Agreement with the United States. For the Meech Lake Accord, this came about because Quebec was the only province that did not sign the new Canadian Constitution in 1982, and Mulrooney wanted to resolve the divisive issue of national unity and include Quebec in a new agreement with the rest of Canada. 
At first, the proposed amendments were popular among the provinces, and all the provinces agreed to a package, and they had reached their agreement at Meech Lake, north of Ottawa. The accord would recognize Quebec as a distinct society in Canada, and also recognize the Anglophone minority in Quebec, as well as the Francophone minority in other provinces. Under the accord, the provinces were given a formal role in the nominating people to the Senate and the Supreme Court of Canada. Among Canadians, the Meech Lake Accord was actually quite popular when it was unveiled, and there was relief that Quebec was joining in officially on the Constitution. Unfortunately, all this would begin to fall apart for the next three years as provincial legislatures took votes and were unable to reach an agreement. Critics of the plan also worried over the weakening of federal power, and Pierre Trudeau was highly against the accord and would come out of retirement to attack it, stating that Mulroney had sold out to the provinces. In English Canada, growing unease began to emerge over the concept of a distinct society for Quebec, and they felt that giving Quebec special status would give it more power than the other provinces. The accord also negotiated by the First Ministers, consisting of the Premiers and the Prime Minister, became an issue for Canadians. For Canadians, it was seen as a backroom political dealing by what they called 11 men in suits. On May 1, 1987, Mulroney spoke to the House of Commons, stating that an agreement had been reached in principle on the constitutional package to allow Quebec to rejoin the Canadian constitutional family. And he would say, quote, This agreement enhances the Confederation bargain and strengthens, I believe, the federal nature of Canada. Although it remains to be formalized, it represents in the judgment of the First Ministers of all political stripes from all areas of the country an historic accomplishment. End quote. To become law, the accord had to be ratified within three years by all ten provinces. Quebec was the first to pass the required resolution of approval on June 23, 1987. The remaining provinces all had to pass their own resolutions of approval by that date in 1990. In the early weeks of 1990s, the premiers did agree to ratify the accord on condition of an elected Senate and other issues. In Manitoba, all political parties agreed to endorse the accord, but hearings had to be held unless everyone in the legislature agreed to bypass them. One member, Elijah Harper, did not vote in favour and as a result the accord did not reach the vote in the province. To give Manitoba more time, a new ratification date had been created, but this began to frustrate the other provinces and it would lead to its collapse. As the clock on Parliament Hill struck midnight last night, the Prime Minister's office across the street lay silent. Earlier this week, the lights had burned late into the night as Brian Mulroney and his advisors tried desperately to find a way out of the Meech Lake impasse. In the end, the accord died prematurely on Friday, despite the government's last-ditch attempts to stop the clock. And last night's deadline, which for three years had been so critical, now seems strangely irrelevant. With Premier Wells's commitment of June 9th, we had excellent prospects to have Meech succeed if the Supreme Court were to endorse the view of our legal advisors with respect to the three-year time limit. Premier Wells' decision to break his commitment and not hold a vote tonight has dashed the one remaining hope to have Meech Lake succeed. Prime Minister Mulroney will address the nation tomorrow. Sad day for Canada. This was all about Canada, but the unity of our country. And this is, it's, uh, 
it's obviously a, a sad day for me as Prime Minister, but uh, I'm particularly thinking of the youth of Canada uh, who count on us to uh, provide for a strong and a united nation, and uh, we'll have to uh, work very hard at that. The collapse of the Meech Lake Accord would have serious consequences for Mulroney. Lucien Bouchard, the Environment Minister and Mulroney's Quebec Lieutenant and close friend, walked out of the government due to the collapse of the Accord. Several other members left the Progressive Conservatives as well as the Liberals. And they would go on to form the Bloc Québécois. Despite being close friends since university, Bouchard and Mulroney would never speak again. Mulroney also began to sell off various Crown corporations, when he came to power in 1984, the government had 61 crown corporations. And by 1989, his government had sold off 23 of them, including Air Canada. Near the end of his first term, Mulroney would also write a wrong that had happened to Japanese Canadians four decades previous. He would give a formal apology to the Japanese Canadians who had been interned during the Second World War, with many losing their property as a result. He also authorized a $300 million package to the families. The government of Mulroney, through the work of Joe Clark, greatly opposed apartheid as well, and Mulroney would meet with many of the country's opposition leaders to show his support for anti-apartheid measures. In 1990, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison, he publicly thanked Canada for its support. While presidents in the past have had good relationships with our prime ministers over the years, Few were as close with the friendship between Ronald Reagan and Mulroney. Many considered Mulroney to be in the hip pocket of Reagan, but it was thanks to this friendship that Mulroney was able to negotiate a landmark treaty on acid rain and the creation of a free trade agreement. Mulroney was actually quite environmentally friendly when it came to his policies. He passed the Environmental Protection Act in 1988, and his government created eight new national parks. Canada was also the first industrialized country to ratify both the Biodiversity Convention and the Climate Change Convention agreed to at the UN Conference on the Environment. Going back to the relationship between Brian Mulroney and Ronald Reagan, the Shamrock Summit needs to be mentioned. This was a summit that happened between the two leaders on March 18, 1985, and due to the Irish background of both leaders, and the fact it was held after St. Patrick's Day, it was given the name Shamrock Summit by the press. It all began traditionally enough, a trumpet fanfare for a couple of politicians proud of their Irish roots, out with their wives for a night at the theatre. The President and Mrs. Reagan, the Prime Minister and Mrs. Mulroney, were entertained by a galaxy of Canadian talent as multicultural as a country. There was dancing by La Grande Ballet Canadienne, Acadian folk singer Edith Butler, a performance by Toronto's famous people players, and a special appearance by Canadian astronaut Mark Garneau. But this, after all, was St. Patrick's Night, and the evening wouldn't have been complete without a rendition of When Irish Eyes Are Smiling. And when a couple of professional Irishmen hear that, well, they couldn't decline the invitation to join in. 
Mulroney and Reagan center stage on St. Patrick's Night in Quebec. And this solo performance by the Prime Minister. Sure they steal your heart away. Long after the treaties are signed and the agreements reached, this will undoubtedly be the most lasting image of Quebec's Shamrock Summit. Larry Stout, CBC News, Quebec City. For American officials, they saw the summit as a chance to mend relations between the two countries following the Trudeau era. Among the events scheduled for the 24-hour schedule, the two men talked about military planning, the upgrading of the Dew Line to use modern electronics, the passing of the Acid Rain Treaty, and the formal signing of the Canada-U.S. Declaration on Goods and Services, which would lead to the Free Trade Agreement. It could be argued that the relationship between the two leaders was the best since John Diefenbaker and Dwight Eisenhower, or Lester B. Pearson and John F. Kennedy. Thanks to the close relationship with Reagan, Mulroney was able to steer him towards the Free Trade Agreement, even when talks stalled. At one point in October of 1987, he called Jim Baker, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, and told him he was going to call Reagan and say, quote, Ron, I want you to explain to me how it is you just concluded a nuclear reduction treaty with your worst enemies, the Soviet Union, and you can't conclude a free trade agreement with your best friends, the Canadians. End quote. Just a little while later, Baker would produce a piece of paper on the negotiating table and stated, quote, All right, you can have your goddamn dispute settlement mechanism. End quote. Many were surprised by Mulroney pushing for free trade, as he was opposed to it during his leadership campaign in 1983. Soon after, he would change his tune on the matter, saying in 1985, quote, Throughout our history, trade has been critical to Canada's livelihood. Now, almost one-third of what we produce is exported. Few countries in the world are so dependent on trade. This trend ultimately threatens the jobs of many Canadians and the living standards of the nation as a whole. We must confront this threat. We must reverse this trend. To do so, we need a better, fairer, and more predictable trade relationship with the United States. At stake are more than 2 million jobs which depend directly on Canadian access to the U.S. market. End quote. The free trade agreement was highly controversial in Canada and was supported by corporations, but not by the unions, regular Canadians, and others. But before an agreement could be created, the Senate demanded an election before having a ratification vote. And this resulted in the free trade agreement becoming the central issue of the 1988 election. In the 1988 election, while Mulroney returned with a majority once again, his party saw its seat count fall from 211 to 169, while the Liberals doubled their seats to 83. Most Canadians voted for parties that opposed free trade, but it was not enough to prevent another majority. And with his successive majority government wins, he became the first Conservative Prime Minister since Sir John E. Macdonald to accomplish the feat. And while Sir Robert Borden did lead two majority governments, his second was under the banner of the Unionist Party rather than the Conservative Party. On January 1, 1989, the Free Trade Agreement was put into effect. Mulroney's second term began with an economic recession hitting the country, and in August of 1989, Michael Wilson, the Finance Minister, announced the introduction of a 9% national sales tax that would replace the 13.5% manufacturer's sales tax. Needless to say, this tax was immensely unpopular, with as many as 80% of Canadians opposing it. 
There was a battle in the Senate over it, and Mulroney used the deadlock clause of the Constitution to allow him to ask the Queen to appoint eight new senators. The government argued that the tax was not a new tax, but a tax shift. But for regular Canadians, it was seen as a new tax, and the use of the clause was resented by many. On January 1, 1991, the new Goods and Services Tax, or GST, came into effect. Canadian business people, Toronto taxi drivers, left it until the last minute and are now lining up to get their meters changed. How are you paying for this, sir? Cash, sir. For $35 plus GST, they get a new meter that then automatically adds a GST to the fares they charge. The tax is taking hold. But there is still confusion. Ottawa reports record numbers of calls today, about 10,000 to this information centre, just one of three it's set up. Among the more common questions, what happens to the price of big ticket items? Should be coming down, says Ottawa, because there's no more manufacturer's sales tax. And in fact, in stores across the country today, prices were being changed. The net gain at the register, with all things being added in, such as our new GST and, and the provincial tax on top of it, means a net saving of about $14 on that side. The other common question, just what is taxable? That can be a tough one. Many store owners still don't know. For example, what about kitty litter at this Ottawa pet store? We're not sure. What about certain kinds of clothing accessories at this Montreal shop? I don't know what to charge tax on. I don't, I mean, out of all the clothing we charge on everything, but I don't know how much to charge. More confusion in Regina. Milk in small containers. Taxed in this drugstore, tax-free in this grocery store. And some questions about tax logic. Condoms, for example, are taxed. Home pregnancy tests are not. Some Canadian businesses, like this ice cream store in Montreal, didn't tax anything today. The new cash registers hadn't arrived. So if anybody wants to come down and get some ice cream before the GST is put on, today's the day. <laughs> some other businesses, like this Newfoundland beauty shop, are not charging their customers. They're paying the GST for them, making the tax a marketing tool. We decided we will take the loss right now. Also, we have a sale on at the same time. Some other business people are not charging the GST because they refuse to, on principle, like this restaurant owner in Montreal. It's crazy. It's, the country is very, very bad. So why are you charge now that this tax? There are other tax protesters, too. An Ontario newspaper refuses to charge a GST to its advertisers. A Kitchener man is trying to raise money to organize a national GST revolt. Ottawa says that eventually it will get around to dealing with people refusing to pay the tax, and for now it does not believe the problem is serious. Tom Kennedy, CBC News, Toronto. One bright spot during the second term was the negotiations to put in place the new territory of Nunavut, the first redrawing of the Canadian map since 1949 when Newfoundland joined the fold. The land claim agreement was completed in 1992 and ratified by 85% of the voters in the new territory in a referendum. Just two weeks after Mulroney resigned as Prime Minister, but prior to his leaving the House of Commons, the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement Act and the Nunavut Act were passed in Parliament, and Nunavut would officially be created on April 1, 1999. With the failure of the Meech Lake Accord, the second round of meetings was held, called the Charlottetown Accord. The new accord would give the provinces jurisdiction over mining, forestry and other areas. It also required that the federal government work with the provinces in areas such as immigration, telecommunications and regional development. 
The accord also addressed Indigenous self-government and Indigenous representation in the government. The agreement would also recognize Quebec as a distinct society, as the Meech Lake Accord had. In the House of Commons, the number of seats would be increased, and no province would have fewer seats than any other province with a smaller population, but Quebec would always be guaranteed 25% of the seats. The Charlottetown Accord was supported by the federal government and all 10 provinces. But, since many criticized the Meech Lake Accord for what was seen as backroom dealings, Mulroney chose to make the Charlottetown Accord more public and put it towards a national referendum. Across the country, 54.3% of the vote went against the Accord, only winning approval in New Brunswick, Newfoundland, Prince Edward Island and the Northwest Territories. A slim majority, 50.1% supported it in Ontario, and 56.7% of voters in Quebec were against it. The economic recession also continued for the country, and debt levels reached $42 billion by 1992, which damaged Canada's credit rating and the Canadian dollar. With Canada now in a recession that many blamed on the Free Trade Act, the Conservatives made the decision to negotiate a Northern American Free Trade Agreement which would include Mexico. This would eventually become NAFTA. By this point, Mulroney's popularity in the polls was lower than any Prime Minister in history due to the failure of the Accords, the economic recession, and the implementation of GST. From 1990 onwards, Mulroney's approval rating was never above 20%. In 1991, Mulroney supported the United Nations during the Gulf War, and Canada would send a CF-18 squadron with support personnel and a field hospital to Iraq. In August of 1991, he sent the HMCS Terra Nova and the HMCS Athabaskan to enforce a trade blockade against the country, and this would be the first time since 1974 in Cyprus when Canadian forces participated directly in combat operations. In regards to the military, Mulroney had promised to increase the military budget and increase the regular force to 92,000 troops. But by the time 1993 came along, the budget had been cut and the force was below 80,000. Mulroney's popularity took a serious hit in Atlantic Canada as well, when he imposed a moratorium on the cod fishery due to the high decline in the cod stocks. And by November 1992, Mulroney's approval rating was just 12%. In February of 1993, Mulroney, facing a mandatory election, decided he was going to resign from federal politics. At the time, his popularity had taken several hits due to the constitutional failures, the economic problems of the country, and the resentment over the creation of the GST. He would tell McLean's magazine, quote, I don't know what comes over you, but all of a sudden, the kinds of things that were important when you were 23 aren't important when you're 53. I don't know if it's called perspective, or if it's called growth, or if it's called what, but it's just there. End quote. Earlier today, I advised my party and caucus that I would be resigning as party leader and prime minister soon after the party had chosen a successor. Plutôt aujourd'hui, j'ai annoncé à mon parti et à mon caucus, que je démissionnerai de mes fonctions de chef du Parti progressiste conservateur du Canada et de premier ministre dès qu'ils m'auront choisi un successeur. And that After we would be choosing a successor. The time has come for me to step aside. I've done my very best for my country and my party, and I look forward to the enthusiasm and renewal that only new leadership brings. 
The last decade has introduced tumultuous change and great challenge to Canada. Intractable and complex issues emerged from these new realities, and my government has sought to confront them directly. Whether one agrees with our solutions or not, none will accuse us, I think, of having chosen to evade our responsibilities by sidestepping the most controversial questions of our time. From free trade and NAFTA and tax reform and the GST and privatizations and deficit reduction and fighting inflation and lowering interest rates, we have made the decisions that are now strengthening Canada's competitive position, boosting our exports and ensuring our future prosperity. Prior to handing over power, Mulroney would tour Europe using federal funds. By the time Kim Campbell took over as Prime Minister, there was only two and a half months before the mandated election, giving the new Prime Minister barely any time to prepare. Mulroney also continued to live at 24 Sussex Drive for some time after Campbell became Prime Minister. For the past decade, Mulroney had formed the Conservative Party into a strong entity, but by the time he left politics, it was beginning to fracture. In the 1993 election, it would see the worst collapse for a major party in Canadian history. The Progressive Conservatives fell from 151 seats to two seats and were no longer a recognized party in the House of Commons. A big reason for this collapse was in the feeling in the West that Mulroney was pandering to Quebec too much and it would lead to the formation of the Reform Party under Preston Manning, which attracted several former Progressive Conservatives. Kim Gamble would speak of Mulroney later in her life, saying, quote, I don't blame someone for being human. People who make a mark are complicated. Brian Mulroney is complicated. He has great skills and annoying flaws. End quote. While it is easy enough to focus on some of the critical aspects of Mulroney's time in office, most do see the beneficial aspects of his time in making Canada a middle power in the world that was able to exert influence to pressure the world to do something about the famine in Ethiopia, apartheid, and even the fall of the Berlin Wall. German Chancellor Helmut Kohl would tell a German committee, quote, There are three leaders in the world we want to thank for German reunification. George Bush, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Brian Mulroney. End quote. Following his time in politics, Mulroney became a senior partner at a law firm, and in 1998 he became the chairman of the Forbes Global Business and Finance magazine. The same year, he was awarded the Order of Canada, and he also served on a variety of boards including Quebec Corps and the Blackstone Group. Even out of politics, controversy still followed Mulroney. A book called On the Take alleged that Mulroney had made a fortune using dubious means while being Prime Minister, and that the Progressive Conservatives had supplemented the family income to help support his lifestyle. The book stated there was, quote, flagrant kickback schemes, bid rigging of government contracts, misappropriation of parliamentary budgets, favours to corporate sponsors of the party, and an unprecedented orgy of patronage appointed that didn't end until the day Mulroney left office. End quote. The biggest issue to dog Mulroney outside of politics was the Airbus affair. Mulroney was mentioned in an investigation into the 1988 purchase of 34 Airbus A320 passenger planes from a European company for $1.8 billion. It was alleged by Swiss authorities and the RCMP that Mulroney was directly involved in defrauding of taxpayers and that he received $5 million in kickbacks as a result of the purchase. Swiss bank account records indicated one account was also Mulroney's, and Mulroney would deny the allegations and filed a $50 million lawsuit for libel damage against his character. 
He asked for $25 million for damages to his reputation and $25 million in punitive damages, which he said he would donate to charity. In pre-trial hearings, Mulroney said he was accused without proof and he lashed out at the government and presented his own case. On January 6, 1997, the case went to the Quebec Superior Court and Mulroney's lawyers blamed the Department of Justice for maligning Mulroney. In the end, Mulroney agreed to settle for an apology and the promise of the government paying $1 million in legal fees. Analysts felt that in the trial, Mulroney was more convincing and his reputation was somewhat restored as a result. Very difficult for the last 14 months for my wife and family and my mother and other family members. With his youngest son, Nicholas, at his side, Brian Mulrooney says he's happy his ordeal is finally over. I was fighting for my family's reputation and honor and my own, for all the people who supported me, uh, and for the millions of Canadians who voted for me. Uh, this was uh, extremely unfair, and uh, we just wanted to make certain that um, uh, that was clarified once and for all, forever, for today and for history. It never happened. I had no involvement whatsoever, directly or indirectly, in this. And that's what the government has finally acknowledged. Mulrooney says something good may come of his ordeal. If, if this experience uh, serves to help one other Canadian family, or any Canadian family, from avoiding this experience for it ever happening to them, if, it, if this keeps it away from another Canadian family, this nightmare, then um, it will have been worth it. Today, it was Prime Minister Jean Chrétien who was on the defensive. He denied his government treated Mulroney unfairly. Just look at the settlement, he says. In the agreement yesterday with uh, the plaintiff, it was recognized that there was absolutely no uh, political intervention and everything was done according to the, practice, the normal practice of government as they exist under, in the past. And sources say that was one of the government's key conditions for a deal, that Alan Rock, a senior cabinet minister, not take the blame for launching the investigation. And the government got what it wanted. The agreement says the parties accept that the RCMP on its own initiated the Airbus investigation, that the Minister of Justice was not involved in the decision to initiate the investigation. Former Newfoundland Premier Frank Moores and businessman Karl Heinz Schreiber were also named in the letter to the Swiss government. The same letter Brian Mulrooney claimed was libelous. They want an apology too, but Alan Rock is non-committal. I have nothing to say about that. The government and the RCMP say the criminal investigation into Airbus continues and that nobody, and that includes Brian Mulrooney, is off the hook. Earlier today, accompanied by his son Mark, Mulroney said he wasn't worried about the RCMP's ongoing criminal investigation. They can investigate me to the cows They won't find a single thing uh, because uh, we've never been in involved uh, in anything untoward. Those close to the former prime minister say he doesn't want to get involved in a political debate over his lawsuit. That he got what he wanted, now he just wants to get on with his life. Prime Minister Jean Chrétien wants to put the whole issue behind him as well. And he says Alan Rock won't be resigning and that the settlement is a good deal for Canadian taxpayers. Julie Van Dusen, CBC News, Ottawa. While there is no concrete evidence that Mulroney accepted kickbacks from the Airbus sale, it did state in 2003 that Carl Heinz Schreiber, the chairman of Airbus Industries, had given him $225,000 over 18 months following his stepping down as Prime Minister. The money was sent in three payments, 
one of which came when Mulroney was still a member of the House of Commons. Mulroney stated the money was there to help promote a fresh pasta business and to develop international contacts for Schreiber. In 2007, a public inquiry was ordered, which revealed that Schreiber had also helped fund Mulroney's 1983 leadership bid. In 2010, Justice Jeffrey Oliphant ruled that Mulroney did not break any laws or use his influence while Prime Minister on the contract. In 2007, Mulroney was presented with the National Order of Quebec and in 2003 received the Woodrow Wilson Award for Public Service. In 2004, upon the death of Ronald Reagan, Mulroney delivered a eulogy becoming the first foreign dignitary, along with Margaret Thatcher, to eulogize at the funeral of an American president. In 2007, Mulroney released his memoirs, which were criticized by some for his attacks on Pierre Trudeau, who Mulroney stated was anti-Semitic in his youth. In 2009, Mulroney was the first recipient of the Sakura Award, presented to him because of his formal apologies to Japanese Canadians for their internment during the Second World War. That same year, a survey conducted by the Capitol Hill Times named Mulroney as the most admired former Prime Minister of Canada. Now, I assume that was living Prime Ministers rather than all Prime Ministers, but the source did not state. On December 5, 2018, Mulroney would present a eulogy for former President George H.W. Bush. Also in 2018, Mulroney was inducted into the Canadian Disability Hall of Fame for his, quote, extraordinary contribution to enriching the quality of life for Canadians with physical disabilities, end quote. In a ranking of the first 20 Prime Ministers in Canadian history up to 1999, Mulroney would place eighth. Since he left politics, there has been a varied outlook on the legacy of Mulroney. Mal's environmental policies were landmark in many ways, there was a great deal of anger towards him over the GST and the free trade agreements. While many of his opponents criticized the policies that were seen as radical at the time, none of the subsequent governments reversed those decisions. His deputy prime minister, Don Mazankowski, would say that Mulroney dragged, quote, Canada kicking and screaming into the 20th century, end quote. As for Mulroney, he had this to say, which I'll use to close out the podcast. He would say, quote, I have always tried to do what I thought would be right for Canada in the long term, not what would be politically popular in the short term. End quote. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Brian Mulrooney. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Biography, 
Canadian Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, Norton Rose Fulbright, Policy Options, Maclean's, National Film Board, Japanese Canadian Cultural Centre, Ottawa Citizen, The Hamilton Spectre, Horatio Alger Association of Canada, and the CBC. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.